Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Simon Hicks, who is Professor of Political Science at the Department of Government at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We discuss this article, Brexit, where is the EU-UK relationship heading, which came out in 2018. In the article, Simon analyzes different scenarios for the midterm relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. The conversation focuses on what Brexit means for both sides economically and politically, and how this affects their bargaining position. While freedom of movement is politically unacceptable for the current UK government, the EU is unlikely to accept breaking up the four freedoms of goods, services, capital, and persons. A more basic free trade agreement thus seems like the most likely outcome of the negotiations. We additionally discuss how the current crisis will potentially affect the future of the European Union. While moves towards stronger integration often happen during times of crises, such an outcome seems unlikely at the moment. If you want to know more about Simon and his research, you can follow him on Twitter under at SimonJHicks or visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tarek. Today, we're going to talk about the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union, and also the future of the EU more generally. We'll first focus on an article of yours in which you outline different scenarios for the future relationship and a possible agreement between UK and EU after Brexit. Before we talk about it in more detail, my first question would just be, what was the motivation behind this paper? So the motivation behind the paper was the fact that in the midst of the Brexit debate in 2017-2018, there was a, an obsessive focus on what was going to happen next week or next month um, with the direction of the Brexit battle going on in the House of Commons in the UK or the bargains going on in Brussels. And I was getting frustrated that there wasn't more of a focus on the medium term, um, thinking about what should the medium term relationship between the UK and the EU be? Um, how, and and one, if we could focus on the medium term, we could then think about how would we get there uh, rather than, you know, what majority would form around the latest little nuance in the bargain going on. Um, so I wanted people to sort of lift their gaze to the medium term horizon rather than focusing on the short term. And so, so that's why I wrote this paper. So before we talk about these different medium term uh, scenarios, let's focus on Brexit for a second from a UK perspective. And I, of course, already had Sarah Hobart on the podcast who talked about the determinants of Brexit. But maybe you can summarize a little bit the consequences for domestic politics within the UK. So basically what happened after the decision? Well, <laughs> I mean, you have to think about the consequences for the UK um, as part of the general long-term trajectory of Britain's relationship with the EU. Because a lot of the determinants that people have focused on um, 
uh, are what were the predictors of the vote in June 2016. Whereas, in fact, uh, you know, I've been teaching and researching EU politics and Britain's relationship with Europe for 20 plus years. And there's always I've always had in my mind a sense that Britain has this sort of semi-detached identity um, with the continent. And so I always felt that sooner or later there was going to have to be a reckoning where Britain would be faced with a, a fork in the road and it would have to decide, is it part of the project or not? And I, th- I do think that then the referendum in 2016 was a decisive moment. So so and it fundamentally changed the direction that the UK was travelling in and all of the domestic politics after that followed that. For example, um, if you were a Remainer, all of a sudden it became very difficult to sustain a position to say we don't respect the decision of the vote. Even though it was a, you know, it looked across the continent as being a relatively close vote, 52-48. In absolute numbers terms, it was quite a big winning margin numerically, 1.6 million people. It was a high turnout. And people did know, you know, what they were voting on. I'd been traveling around up and down the country, speaking on various different platforms, and I was absolutely amazed how mobilized the public was, even in little small towns in the middle of nowhere, places I'd never been to in the UK. Um, And so it became very difficult for people who were Remainers, I was clearly a Remainer, um, to then say, well, actually, we think this is the wrong decision because the public said, you told us this was our chance in a lifetime decision. You told us we had to make a decision thinking not just about ourselves, but about the country, about the direction we wanted to travel in. And we wouldn't, this would be it. You know, once we made the decision, it would be over. So it became very difficult, for example, for the Lib Dems or Labour or the SNP, these sorts of parties who who really genuinely believed this was the wrong decision. And so... This led to a schism right down the middle of the Labour Party, for example, where clearly um, the Labour leadership, the Labour members of Parliament, most of the Labour Party members were clearly Remainers. But the vote for the Labour Party was clearly much more split. And so this was a party torn between saying we recognise the democratic will of the British people to decide to leave the EU, yet um, we have an elite in the party that says we want to remain in the EU. And I think... I was frustrated at the time for both all, you know, Lib Dem and Labour because and the SNP all being more Remainer type parties. I thought what they should have done instead of saying um, we're campaigning for a second referendum, I thought what they should have done is say we accept the result. What we are going to think about is a close relationship with the EU. We have to leave because the public has said we're going to leave. What we should be thinking about is what's the closest, what's the softest version of Brexit as the compromise position between, in a sense, the reluctant Remainers and the reluctant Leavers. And if you look at it as a 52-48 vote, then the median voter in that vote is, is really a reluctant Leaver. It's someone, it's that small proportion of the public who thought, I'm not sure, but I think we probably should leave. And what I found frustrating after the vote was the plurality within the leave block became driving the agenda. So the majority of leavers were people who were sort of really arch hard Brexiteers. And people would say, well, the opinion polls would show they are the majority within the leave block. Therefore, they should have what they want. And I was saying, well, but why should the majority within a majority? In a sense, that's a minority opinion if you take the public as a whole. 
The median opinion of the public as a whole is some is a softer version of Brexit, but that never got aired at all in any of the debate. And so that that's why I, I wanted to write this article in a sense to also shape some of the debates internally were going on in, in the UK at that time. Mm-hmm. If we now look at it from the EU perspective, would you say there was that Brexit had an impact on how the public in the other European Union member states looked at European integration? Uh, well, I think the opinion polls suggest that in the year after the Brexit vote, in a sense, there was a, 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 a dawning of you know, on in the public's mind in many countries across Europe, that a lot of the benefits of the European Union have been taken for granted. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that particularly younger generations that took for granted, their ability to travel, to consume a wide range of, of goods and services from all across Europe, uh, to study in different countries, to, to, to move and live in different countries. And, and, All of the economic, social, personal, consumption, security type um, benefits that people took for granted, uh, suddenly they, they, with the threat that perhaps if the EU collapses, all of these things would be removed. I think that was a wake up call to a lot of people across Europe, particularly when they saw that, how difficult it was going on inside the UK to deal with the, the aftermath of the Brexit vote. It was the perception on the continent. I mean, you're there on the continent, Tari, but the, from London, it looked, looking across and reading some of the French and German uh, media coverage and following some of the debate in Brussels, it looked that the continent was looking at Britain and saying, oh my God, this is, you know, a disaster. Um, It's going to be an economic, massive economic hit for the UK. It's going to be political upheaval and political chaos. Uh, in the UK, why would anybody want to leave the EU? And so, I, but I actually think this is a relatively short-term phenomenon. I think at the end of the day, Britain will be outside the EU, and people will ignore very quickly. You know, the, we're, we're myopic, and we or we forget very easily the pain that we've gone through. And people, once Britain is out the other end. There'll be a new model of a relationship with the EU. So in addition to the Swiss model and the Norwegian model, there'll be a British model. And whatever that content of that British model is, it will start to settle down and Britain, for whatever reason, will start to recover. And people will then say, well, that doesn't look too bad. And that, that I think, is a really worrying, potentially very threatening medium term consequence of Brexit that I think perhaps some people across Europe have underestimated the sort of magnetic effect of having the UK outside the EU and with a completely new and different model of relationship with the EU. And perhaps we can talk about what member states would be potentially most affected by that. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because also when Sarah Hobart was on the podcast, she mentioned exactly that, that no messy no matter how messy the exit of the UK is going to be, there will exist a narrative about how you can leave the European Union, right? Exactly. Not just a narrative about how you can leave, but it's it, people will also say it, it, they think that there'll be a British model that you can take off the shelf and you'll be able to get there much more quickly than the UK did. They'll say they'll discount all the economic and political pain the UK went through to get to that point. And they'll say, well, we don't, we can bypass all that. We can just go straight to that model and take it off the shelf. Mm -hmm. 
Um, maybe that's a good good moment to talk about these different options actually that you outline in the paper. So you put them on a continuum and you have the, the softest option, the softest Brexit that you call, many other people have called the Norway option. And then on the other end, you have a very hard Brexit of some form of free trade agreement or even um, no deal at all. Can you outline these in a little more detail? Yeah, so... Part of this was to to get people to think that Brexit was not just a binary choice between a hard Brexit and a soft Brexit, that actually there's lots of different potential versions of Brexit. Um, several of them are off-the-shelf existing models. So one off-the-shelf existing model is the softest possible version, which is the European economic area, and that would be the UK leaving the EU but remaining a member of the European Economic Area, which would mean the UK remaining in the single market with complete free movement of goods, services, capital and labour and subject to the uh, jurisprudence of the ECJ. And in fact, you know, this is the Norwegian option. Uh, Norway seems to be pretty happy with that, but but that's derogatorily described in the UK as as sort of facts democracy where things the a directive is passed in brussels it's facts to norway and norway has to implement it um i've often described it to my students as the puerto rico option which is in a sense you know puerto rico is a is a commonwealth of the united states it's not a state of the united states uh, but it is part of the united states single market it has to apply us federal laws and so on but doesn't have any representation in the in congress um, so it it it's an odd relationship. Um, it does have very large economic benefits, but there are political issues. Uh, Norway, I think, accepts it for several reasons. Norway accepts it because I think on average, a lot of the Norwegian standards are above the EU standards anyway. So they have no problem in applying a lot of the EU rules. Equally, Norway feels, you know, it's a very rich, wealthy, successful country. So it doesn't feel that constrained. And equally, Norway says, well, you know, we're a relatively small country. So even if we did have a seat at the table, it wouldn't make that much difference. And what was interesting was when the UK in 2015, the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee was considering various options for the UK after Brexit. They went to Switzerland and they went to Norway, the members of this committee, and talked to the Swiss and the Norwegians, uh, the parliamentarians in the Swiss Parliament, the Norwegian Parliament, and and. In the report, there's this lovely passage that says um, our interlocutors in Bern and Oslo advised us that we'd be better off staying in the EU than leaving the EU and being obliged to accept almost all of the EU legislation. <laughs> so, so, so this was uh, on the assumption that Britain is a big player and a big country and is more likely to get what it wants if it stays in the EU, whereas being outside, you're going to have to accept the rules. And, you know, this became really part of the very powerful debate in the UK. And we'll perhaps return to why this was then taken off the table relatively early. The other extreme, the hardest Brexit extreme, would be the UK trading with the EU under WTO rules as a normal member of the World Trade Organization. Very, very few countries in the world trade with the EU under standard WTO rules because almost all of them have some sort of deal for trading some set of goods or services with the EU, some preferential trade agreement. 
But if, if the UK did fail to reach an agreement with the EU, and this is still a possibility that from 1st of January 2021, the UK could be trading with the EU as a normal member of the WTO. So, so this in practice would mean there would be tariffs and quotas. So tariffs are taxes on the import of goods and quotas are limits by category. And so, you know, what happens is you have to agree a tariffs and quotas schedule, which is a big fat document that lists every single possible good you can imagine being traded and, and what the volume is that you're allowed to trade in the given year and what the tax is on those sorts of things. So, so in a sense, this will be a remarkable thing if the UK ends up there, because never before that we can think of in modern history has a country gone from having a completely free trade agreement to then reimposing enormous tariffs and quotas. This would be quite remarkable, particularly when you think about the fact that for a lot of the more libertarian Brexiteers, the whole idea of Brexit was to actually have more free trade, not less. So this is you know, the EU being the UK's largest trading partner, a broadly approximately 50% of the UK exports in goods and services and 50% of UK imports in goods and services are with the other EU 27 member states. Um, this would impose enormous tariffs and, and quite restrictive quotas on large proportions of those goods. But between those two extremes, there's lots of potential options. So the next one along from the more hard Brexit end would be some sort of free trade agreement. So the EU has lots of free trade agreements. Most recently, it has two of the most comprehensive free trade agreements. It's signed with Canada and with South Korea. And in, in Britain, we like to call this the, the Canada option or the Canada model would be a free trade agreement with the EU. And Canada sounds nice to the UK. Canada sounds cuddly, part of the Commonwealth. They have the Queen as their head of state. How bad can it be? You know, Canada tends to have quite sensible prime ministers. It seems like a nice, cuddly country. The Canada option, the Canada relationship with the EU. That sounds sort of nice. They don't say the South Korea relationship, and I think this perhaps says something quite quite negative about perceptions of, of other countries in the world from a British perspective. I have not heard anybody say that, that Britain would be opting for the South Korea relationship with the EU, but many people say we'd be opting for the Canadian relationship with the EU, but in practice they're pretty much the same thing. Um, what they are are trade agreements. And I think there's a big misunderstanding of people who claim to be free traders or some of the politicians in the UK who try to promote free trade because they see they have a very a romantic view of free trade. They assume that you can sign a free trade agreement in a, on, you know, on the back of an envelope that says we agree to trade completely freely between our two markets. That's not a trade agree, free trade agreement. A free trade agreement should probably be called something different. It should probably be called a, uh, a regulated trade agreement. Because what a free trade agreement is, is an is a, is a agreement to trade in a subset of goods and services according to a fixed set of rules and a fixed set of procedures to govern disputes with a schedule of particular tariffs and quotas that will apply across those goods and services that you have agreed to trade in. It's not free trade, it's regulated trade. The only real genuinely free trade is to be a member of the single market. If you think that free trade is any good or service that you can make in one country can be freely sold in any other country without any restrictions, that's a single market. That's what why that's the qualitative difference between a single market and a free trade agreement. A free trade agreement just says in a subset of goods and services, we'll agree to trade according to a fixed set of rules. So it's still relatively hard. 
Um, if we move along in a softer direction, the British government and some British conservatives were saying, "What well, we want what a Canada plus or a Canada plus plus plus. And what they mean there is a free trade agreement plus a set of rules that would allow for far more liberalised trade, particularly in services, because the UK is a services based economy. 80 percent of of the UK economy is in services. One of the largest sectors is financial services, of course. One of the other very large sectors, probably the second largest sector of the British economy, is the creative industries, film, fashion, art, design, media, architecture, advertising, higher education. You know, these are major export industries of the UK. These industries are not currently covered by any free trade agreement. So, for example, you know, you think about Universal Vivendi, so one of the world's largest media production companies, its European headquarters are in High Street Kensington in London. So, you know, they, they make all of their, or they manage and, and run all, all the, the, the TV programs they're making for TV stations all across Europe out of their headquarters in London. Can they continue to do that if you have a free trade agreement? You're now a, a third country. So no, they'd probably have to relocate all of these contracts to their office in Paris and run them out of Paris rather than London. That's okay if you're a very large company like Universal Vivendi, but it's not if you're a, a relatively small company. So a friend of mine, Andy, he runs a an interior design for cruise ships company. Um, London is the world capital of interior design for cruise ships, he tells me. We don't make the ships anymore, but they design them here. Probably an industry not going very far, <laughs> given in the post-COVID world. But, but anyway... It's an illustration of the fact a lot of these very small businesses in this sector, and if they're excluded from the single market, then they haven't got customers anymore because they're providing services to consumers in the other EU 27. And if they haven't got an agreement that allows them complete free access to provide those services on the continent, you know, these businesses won't be able to be based in the UK anymore. So the plus element of an FTA plus would have to cover the most comprehensive agreement on services we could ever get. The final option of on the continuum is, is closer to the Norway model, but Norway minus, and the minus there is minus the free movement of people. And this was a recognition of the idea that the main reason why people vote in the UK voted to leave the EU was to reintroduce restrictions on the movement of people, the free movement of labour. So here, the UK, some British politicians are saying, we're quite happy to have free movement of goods, services and capital, but not labour. So could we have the Norway model minus that? Um, and so, you know, that perhaps might be more palatable to accept EU rules in some of those other areas if we could regain, if we could take back control of our borders, as some of the British politicians were saying. So that's kind of long-winded way to explain the continuum. Sorry, Derek. So if we think now about how likely these different outcomes are, um, you start with arguing that no deal really is a very unlikely outcome because both sides do not want that. They really do not want that outcome. Would you say that still holds today? Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing I look back when I started writing this paper and say, maybe I missed something, it's that it's I'm really... It's, we could really genuinely end up with a no deal outcome. But I but I think of this as a no deal outcome in the short run. I don't think anybody will accept a no deal outcome in the medium term. And what I was really trying to think about was the medium term. So even if we fall out of the EU in January next year, fall out of the, the, the exit agreement, 
um, without a deal. Yes, that would be a no deal outcome. But very, very quickly, they would have there'll be pressure on both sides to 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 overcome to 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 come to some kind of trade agreement to cover the large swathes of goods in particular goods trade between the continent and the UK that would need some kind of deal package to deal with it. So I think what would happen is we'd have a no deal outcome and then very quickly they'd come to a way to agree a very bare bones basic goods based uh, trade agreement. So in that sense yeah I was perhaps I I perhaps underestimated the fact that we might start off with a no deal outcome. And on the other end, you also basically exclude the Norway option because of domestic politics within the UK. And I guess that has even become less likely considering how the last election went and with the current government. Yeah, um, I think the Norway option is excluded for now. I don't write it off in the medium term. And medium term, I mean five years. When I think about where the EU might be heading in general, and we'll perhaps we'll get to that, because I th I do think that we may well be heading towards a two-tier Europe, um, something along the lines of a proposal that the Bruegel uh, Institute in, in Brussels, a think tank in Brussels, came up with very soon after the Brexit vote in the summer of 2016. They proposed what they called a continental partnership, and... What that continental partnership would be was a sort of two-tier Europe where there'd be a core of EU member states that would have the full package of EU policies, EMU, common foreign policy, um, the Schengen Agreement and so on. And then there'd be a periphery or a second tier that would be all part of the single market. And there'd be a new architecture for governing that single market collectively. So I think if you think of it sort of a broad continental scale single market and a, and a council or some new art, new decision making or governance model for governing that single market. And then within that, a small core where you'd have all the other elements of deeper European integration. In the medium term, we still might be heading in that direction. And in that sense, that second tier would be a new version of the EEA. And if that happens, then I think we could end up with the UK eventually on that tier. Mm -hmm. And that would include freedom of movement then or not? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I think that uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think my guess right now is it probably would, but there would be some more restrictions on it. So if you go back to the original treaties, it was free movement of labor. It gradually evolved through a series of directives plus through ECJ jurisprudence into the free movement of people uh, and citizens and the citizenship element of the Maastricht Treaty, um, where people actually have citizenship rights by being members of the EU, not just rights to seek a job, but rights also to consume public services, education, healthcare, pensions, and so on. Um, and I can imagine that we go back to the original interpretation of the free movement of labor, meaning you have right to get a job or to seek to find a job, but it could be restricted by time limits and a whole bunch of other things. So so it could be free movement of, of labor, but not necessarily free movement of people in the way we've currently come to think of the free movement of people. I think the, the integrity of these basic freedoms of the European Union in the future is a very interesting question in itself. And especially it's hard to see how the European Union is 
going to defend it within a wave of growing nationalism within European member states. So in a time when freedom of movement really is most often presented not as a normative ideal, but as that burden that somehow needs to be shared. And I guess there's this old quote by um, by Martin Schulz that's something like, I refuse to imagine a Europe in which lorries and hedge funds can cross borders, but citizens cannot. And that really seems like out of a very, very different time, although it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, exactly. And in some senses, you can think about, you know, in the post-COVID world, um, a lot of these things will be up for grabs because we don't currently have, you know, as much, you know, freedom of movement has disappeared completely. Uh, freedom of capital probably hasn't. Freedom of goods and services, freedom of services has pretty much disappeared, or at least certain people being able to travel to deliver services. We have supply chains, but the supply chains are under threat. So in a sense, you know, we're back to, <laughs> I do really think that, that, that there, you know, the possibility of where we may be heading, even within the single market over the next few years, is really up for grabs. Before we talk about the the, the COVID um, consequences for the European project, maybe for the for the short term relationship, I guess you see then some version of a free trade agreement as the the most likely, and then they will see if they build something else on top. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, and the reason I got to that logically was to say, let's just look at the economics and the politics of, of both the UK side and the EU side. Economics from both sides would point to a much closer relationship, a softer form of Brexit. Um, the economic costs of Brexit would be minimised. The economic costs for, of Brexit will be higher for the UK than they will for the continent because of the percentage of our trade that would be affected. And the estimates range from between 3 and 8% of our GDP. Uh, and I remember when I was uh, presenting this paper at a conference um, of LSE alumni in Greece, um, I remember, you know, a big hall of LSE alumni and on the front where it was Simitis, former Greek prime minister and a few other uh, great and the good in, in Greece who, who happened to have been to the LSE. And Simitis, of course, asked the first question. He said, Professor Hicks, are you telling me that in the worst case scenario, that the, the impact of Brexit on the British economy would be 8% of GDP? And I said, yes. And he sort of shrugged. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a very telling moment for me because he sort of said, he was basically saying, you can survive that. You're a rich country. And so, you know, in a sense... If you as a country make a political choice that you're willing to take that economic hit, you're totally entitled to make that political choice as long as, you know, it's transparent to people. And most people in Britain didn't believe that they would that the economic costs of Brexit will be that big. And, and it may not be that big. It will depend on what kind of deal we come out with. And if you think about what we're now experiencing across Europe with the, the, the lockdown of our economies, the impact of the current corona crisis is going to be much, much larger than the impact of Brexit. So, so, so I do think the focus is not on economics. The focus is on politics. And on the politics side, from the British perspective, it's about regaining sovereignty. And what they mean by that is regaining our ability to set our own rules rather than collectively setting the rules in Brussels and regain control of immigration in the UK. And I think 
you know, historically we're an island. Um, we don't have, um, you know, we have a tradition of uh, history of, of regulating the movement of people at our borders, airports, ports, and so on. We don't have ID cards. We don't. Ha- you don't have to register with the police or local authority or anyone where you come and live in the country. So, so we really control at our borders in a very different way to a lot of the the continent where they're continental countries and and they've got very porous borders. And then you police or control who lives where by asking people to to register with the police. So, so we, once you get into the UK, you are very liberal. You are very free. You are very open. And so we have actually became became a magnet through the. 1990s and 2000s with English speaking, fast growing economy, very liberal market where people can often pay cash to employ people. Very few questions are asked. Employers aren't required necessarily to check up on ID cards or anything like that because there are no ID cards. And so it became very easy to come to the UK. And so the, the perception in the UK was that we've seen very, very fast immigration to the UK, not just from the EU, about 50% of net immigration into the UK was from outside the EU, largely from the Indian subcontinent. Um, And about 50% of net immigration into the UK was from the EU, largely from Central and Eastern Europe. Um, And and immigration became the number one issue from the mid-2000s through to the referendum in 2016, when people asked, what's the number one issue based in the country? People would say immigration. And that captured lots of different things. For some people, that meant social integration. We don't like the fact that the country is changing, culturally we're changing, and there were certain people who didn't like that. For other people, it meant competition for low-skilled jobs and competition for public services. And, you know, we certainly heard that as we were traveling around the country. We went to parts of the country we didn't, I'd never been to before. And we heard people saying, there are no places in the primary schools and we can't get to see a doctor and that you have to wait a long time for a council house and my wages in my job that I work have gone down because all these people have come and they're competing for these jobs. And you, you did get a sense that, you know, hand in hand, what we had a period of austerity in the UK after 2008 to 2010 and the financial crisis that went hand in hand with very open immigration policies, cuts in public spending that were largely passed on to local government local government then cutting back on their local services that they provide. And of course, then you get squeezed competition for public services and competition for often low skilled jobs in sectors like agriculture and building trades. And so some of the anti-immigration sentiment was clearly racism, you could argue, or opposition to cultural change, if you want to put it in a more positive way. Um, But some of the the opposition was to do with genuinely a perception that um, there is, you know, competition for jobs, competition for public services. And Nigel Farage encapsulated this um, during the referendum campaign when he had a slogan that said, a city the size of Newcastle moves to the UK every year. So, you know, city the size of Newcastle moves to the UK every year. That's net 280,000 people, the city the size of Newcastle. And that's such a powerful concept for people to say every year we're taking into the country a city the size of Newcastle and then he'd go on and say and you wonder why the roads are full and you wonder why you can't get a house and you wonder why you know and so on and so on so it resonates so this is all about taking back control was a very powerful slogan and the politics of that meant taking back control particularly of immigration policy so that meant I think immediately Norway option was off the table. Norway minus potentially was an option, but immediately pushed you towards the harder end of Brexit. From the EU side, again, the politics would play out. And the politics was no cherry picking for the UK. You cannot 
allow the UK, a relatively large economy, signing a new agreement with the EU to say, we like free movement of goods and capital and services, but we don't want free movement of people. This was seen as cherry picking from the the classic, from the, the, the four freedoms at the heart of the European project. And if the UK can cherry pick from those four freedoms, who else can cherry pick? Hungary could then say, oh, well, perhaps we'll cherry pick too. And what about Austria? And what about some of the new relations that the EU is trying to build up? So from the EU's point of view, they said, you can take off the shelf existing options we have because we know they work. And if you take them off the shelf, they won't undermine any of our internal structures that we have or any of our existing external agreements. So from the EU side, there were only two off the shelf options, the Norway option of the EEA and some kind of FTA like South Korea or Canada. Given those two options, the only viable option for the UK then is to choose the free trade agreement. And so that's why logically I thought in a sort of two-person bargaining game, we're going to end up with a suboptimal equilibrium, which will be uh, a basic free trade agreement that largely just covers goods. What I think is interesting politically within the UK is that there seems to be the sentiment, and maybe particularly among labor politicians and, and supporters, that this issue is somehow going to go away once this deal has happened. And I mean, obviously, recording this from Switzerland, uh, this is, is an outrageous idea, right? And especially if you think of immigration as an even broader issue, um, this issue will, will, of course, stick, uh, stick with the UK. And so um, giving in on these questions and, and hoping that you can win back voters uh, based on, let's say, labor market or social policies um, just seems very unlikely to me. It's funny you say that, Tarek, because we had in the UK, I remember one of our briefings we had at LSE where we brought a few people together to discuss these sorts of issues. We had the Swiss ambassador to the UK come and, and uh, the Swiss ambassador to the UK currently is a former Swiss negotiator on the EU-Switzerland negotiations. And he, I remember him saying very clearly, he said, I've got two messages for you that you'll find uncomfortable. One is um, the EU and your relationship with it will become a bigger feature of your domestic politics once you're outside the EU than it ever was once you're in the EU. Because he said, you'll con you know, when you're in the EU, you might argue about things, but you realise the only way you'll change it is with a referendum to leave or to stay. Whereas once you're outside the EU, you're going to argue about everything. You're arguing about immigration, you're arguing about you know, can we have a new deal on these kind of services? What about foreign policy? What about defense? What about data sharing? Everything is up for grabs. And so you're going to argue about everything all the time. Um, and it'll be a constant feature of your domestic politics. And he said, the second thing is once you're outside the EU, you'll realize you'll lose most of these bargains. The EU is very rigid. It's big and powerful and rigid. It's a legal entity that hardly budges. It has to agree by unanimity, which makes it very difficult to change any status quo. And the UK will do badly and you'll be perceived to lose most of these deals. And because of that, your public will gradually become more anti-European than pro-European over time. <laughs> so and the more I thought about that, the more I thought, Actually, there's a lot of truth to that. And when when you look, and I show in the paper that when you look at, say, Norway relative to Sweden and Switzerland relative to Austria, when you roll back to the early 90s, when the decisions were made in those countries about whether to join the EU or not, there was not much of a difference between Sweden and Norway. And there was not much of a difference between Austria and Switzerland. 
And Austria and, and Sweden agreed by small margins to join. Norway and Switzerland agreed not to. And the trajectories in terms of public attitudes towards the EU have gone in completely opposite directions. So Sweden, the public, is now broadly very pro-European. Austria, maybe not so much, but still pretty pro-European. Switzerland and Norway, the publics have actually become more anti-European over time since that point. And I fear the same could happen in the UK. When you look at, say, UK vis-a-vis Ireland, when you think back at when the UK and Ireland joined, they had similar levels of public support for the EU. And the UK in time may end up with a very, very different set of attitudes. I guess from the EU perspective, and especially federalists within within the European Union, there, among some of them, there was an initial reaction to Brexit. There was something like, now that the UK is out, we can finally do proper European integration. That also seems a bit like out of a different world right now, right? Yeah, I, I had so many of those conversations in Brussels, the weeks and months after Brexit with MEPs and officials in the commission and, and, and people in, in Coriper who, you know, some people would say, we're very sorry, of course, to see the UK go and you know, I'm an Anglophile and all the rest. But then they would say, but on the other hand, this is a great opportunity for Europe. We can finally take that great leap forward we've wanted to do. And the UK has been a break. <sighs> I mean, I just don't buy that. I mean, firstly, the UK has not been a break on setting up of economic and monetary union or Schengen or, you know, some of the other elements of deeper European integration. The UK has stood on the sidelines within the EU um, and secondly, I just don't see an appetite for deeper integration. And, and this is one of the things you've got to remember. We, we think back of the period of European integration of 9 to 10 to 12 to 15 to 28 member states. The big jumps forward in the process of European integration was when the EU was much more smaller and more homogeneous. So, yes, whenever the EU has faced major crises before or the European project has faced major crises before, the member states have then found a way to resolve those crises. And it has often led to a major step forward in integration and a new package deal. When you think about the package deal in the mid 80s, for the Single European Act. You can see this in a sense as, as Europe's response to the economic crises of the 70s and early 80s. And the response was from left to right, a broad consensus that said the European, we need a, we need a genuinely single market in Europe, a genuine single market, free movements of goods, services and capital. For the left, it was about trying to create European industrial champions on a continental scale. For the right, it was about opening up and liberalizing markets. But they could, whether from Mitterrand or Thatcher, they could agree we want to create a market on a continental scale so we can go toe to toe with the Americans and with the East Asians. That was the perception. And that came hand in hand to then think about how do we build a package deal around that? So part of that package deal was a cross left right divide. So this was free movement of capital and liberalization of markets in return for common environment policies and common social policies and minimum standards. Um, this was about liberalizing markets in return for those peripheral member states that said, you know, we're concerned that our, our industries can't compete as well with the core high tech center of Europe. It was doubling of the European structural funds, which meant that some of these peripheral countries were getting 5% of their GDP as checks from Brussels every year to rebuild their infrastructure, roads, schools, airports, and so on. So it was a package deal both across left and right and a package deal between member states. 
And that's what enabled that great leap forward in the mid in the mid 80s. I don't see that package deal as being possible now for two reasons. One, the EU is it's much harder to get a package deal with 27 than it ever was with 12 or 15. Much, much more difficult, just numerically more. Secondly, within those 27, I actually think the preferences of those member states are far more heterogeneous on the key issues than they ever were when you think back in the 1980s. These were modern... Western European states relatively, you know, when you said the EU is going to set common rules on uh, not gender discrimination in employment contracts, you cannot discriminate. I mean, you know, of course, some member states were more advanced than others at that time, but nobody could be really opposed to that sort of thing. When you think today, the, the enormous heterogeneity, both economic heterogeneity, income heterogeneity, but also preferences about society and how society should be organised and the sort of social norms in society about the family, about sexual rights, about rights of immigrants and whether or not the society should be a multi-ethnic society or not. When you think about the, the, the narrative in places like Hungary or Poland right now. And then attitudes towards external actors, attitudes towards Russia, attitudes towards the United States, attitudes towards a common... European defence policy, attitudes towards immigrants and whether should Northern Europeans help Southern Europeans with the people arriving on boats from 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 across the Mediterranean. And that, that is and I haven't even got into the issues of economic and monetary union and whether there should be solidarity within economic and monetary. Union. I just think the preferences are just so heterogeneous now that I find it really hard to try and think about what sort of package deal would you need to put together to get that supposed great leap forward to the next stage of European integration that would allow the EU to really develop further towards a federalist project. Whether or not Britain's at the table, I don't think changes that very much. Mm. I think that's a good uh, good moment to for, as a bridge for uh, my next question. And that is really, um, until a couple of months ago, Brexit was the dominant issue of European politics. And that has, of course, changed now because we're recording this during, type, during the time of the, the COVID pandemic, which many argue really threatens the, the substance of the European project. And I guess mostly from a perspective of not the current health crisis, but especially the economic crisis that comes with it. Do you agree with this assessment? Yeah, uh, I, it, it's a little too early to tell. I mean, that's, that's a kind of easy opt-out. Um, I do think that Brexit has gone down the agenda of items that the EU needs to address. Um, and I think that could well mean that we're going to fall out of the EU without a deal, initially at least, And that's not just from a British perspective, that's from the EU perspective. In a sense, it's, there's a sort of a decision-making capacity here. And if you haven't got sufficient decision-making capacity, you can't really focus on these issues when there's so many other things you need to deal with. The other thing that the crisis has really thrown up is at the beginning of the crisis, the EU was very slow in responding to what was happening in Southern Europe, particularly in Italy, but also in Spain. And this is because it partly fell, fed a narrative for a lot of Northern European countries that, well, Southern Europe, these are, these are governments or administrations that can't get their act together. That was the story about 
the EMU crisis, the sort of sovereign debt crisis. These are countries and governments that have run up massive public debts. And that's not our fault. That's their fault. And so, you know, if we just bail them out, that'll be throwing good money after bad. And why should our hardworking taxpayers uh, bear the costs of the fact that these these governments haven't take, been very careful or prudent with their public finances. And I think there was a sort of spillover to today from a lot of the Northern European countries because the crisis initially hit in the South to just assume that the reason why there were so many people dying in Italy and Spain was because these were sort of badly run public administrations. And I think it took quite a while before people started to realise, no, that's not the case. They were just unlucky, but they were first. And in fact, the rest of Europe is affected, you know, has benefited by learning very quickly from what was happening in Spain and Italy to then lock down very quickly in comparison. And and you now see the fact that this is not really the fault necessarily of Italy or Spain. They were just unlucky. Um, and so I don't. And, and there I think it does change. So I think the debate about perhaps Corona bonds. So, for example, the EU introducing a new uh, economic instrument to help people to get out of the crisis or to deal with the current crisis, for example, and, and common purchasing of PPE, personal protective equipment or ventilators or any other thing like that. I think there the debate is now moved on and is in a, is in very different way to where it was with, for example, Eurozone bonds, the idea of bonds within the Eurozone to, to, to help support government finances for those member states with very large public debt. But still, I, I, I can't. See, you still see a block on that. You see a block on that in several member states, like the Netherlands, for example, where they're not the public and you know the political establishment, the government right now, the central bank. They're loath to the idea that we move from a current European Union architecture, which I think largely as single market governed on a continental scale, but public finances largely left to member states. To, to actually a centralization of a large part of fiscal policy, or at least establishing a new fiscal capacity for the EU. If we did have this fiscal capacity for the EU, that would be a major, major step forward in the process of European integration. And I don't see a lot of those Northern European countries, whether it's Germany or the Netherlands or Finland or, or, or other members in the Euro in Northern Europe being willing to take that step forward. And if they're not willing to take that step forward, I can't see a major uh, way in which you're going to move from uh, common monetary policies to common fiscal policies. So you've already um, mentioned this idea earlier that you very often hear in this um, in discussions about the current crisis, and this is a bit the optimistic outlook that large steps in further integration within European integration have often happened in times of crises, but. Right now, we don't see that this is going to happen. Yeah, I don't. I, I tend to think about crises in the EU as to as you know, never underestimate the ability of the EU to find a way to muddle through. <laughs> so, you know, in you know, the crisis goes through certain ways, whether it's the migration crisis or the eurozone crisis or the current corona crisis, the initial stage is sort of messy and ugly. Lots, too many actors, no leadership, too many checks and balances, impossible for the EU to act decisively. But eventually, the EU identifies what are the key things we can do together and we need to do together and what arrangements and architecture and facilities do we need to put in place to be able to address those things. 
So whether that is some way to deal with burden sharing of refugees in the, in the migration crisis or in the Eurozone crisis, it's some sort of monetary fund, Europe, quasi-European monetary fund as a financial backstop, new powers for the ECB, the beginning of banking union. Um, and with the corona crisis right now, it's probably some common European public health purchasing mechanism, coordination and cooperation in public health, tracking and tracing and data sharing. Uh, you know, they get there eventually. They don't go as far as I think some people would like, but eventually they do put in place things that you'd never have thought before a crisis the EU would and that would, would actually put in place. And I think we'll probably see the same with this crisis. And I think, ironically, in when we look back, we think of the, e, the EU actually can deal with crises, but, but it, they get there in a messy way. It takes time. Um, and rarely do these crises really lead to sort of existential crises. I, I think Brexit is a far more existential crisis for the EU than the current corona crisis, for example. I'm going to ask you a question that you probably won't like so much, but I'll try it anyway. So next year, um, at, in, in fall, after 16 years in power, Angela Merkel will step down as the German ch chancellor in all likelihood. Do you think this is going to be a good or a bad thing for the future of European integration? Wow. Uh, I guess it depends on your view of the individual in history. My undergraduate degree is in history. So I think as political scientists, we don't like to think of the power of the role of the individual. Uh, we tend to think it's about preferences, institutions, and um, I think in history, in contrast, they, there's one view of history that does place a lot of emphasis on the individual. Um, and another view of history will say, no, it's all about very deep underlying forces. And those people just happen to be there at the right place at the right time. And if it wasn't them doing it, it would have been somebody else doing it. Um, so if you think this is about the individual, then I think losing Angela Merkel could be a very worrying time for Europe because I think Germany is at the cusp of a you know, of heading in different directions. Um, the long tradition that goes all the way from Adenauer to Merkel has often been that Germany can only really be sovereign if it is sovereign within the process of European integration. Uh, and I think although there's been criticism of Merkel, I think Merkel on key moments has stepped up to 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 in that tradition, uh, Germany as playing a role in finding a solution to key European challenges, whether it's Germany stepping in to offer more money in the multi-annual uh, budget framework or Germany stepping in to help resolve the refugee crisis or so on. Um, so if that's Merkel playing that decisive role and she goes, then I think we could potentially see a new German leader or German leadership that tries to take an even more robust German national interest, more sort of traditional conception of national interest role. And if Germany plays that role, I think that would be very damaging for the EU as a whole. But on the other hand, you know, as a kind of contemporary political scientist, I'd say, look, Merkel is Merkel. If it wasn't Merkel, it would be some other CDU, moderate CDU politician that's likely to be at the helm. Politically in Germany, it's the moderate CDU politicians that are the ones who, who generally are very successful in the in German elections with German public preferences. 
The checks and balances of the German political system mean you have to build broad consensus within both the cabinet and the Bundestag and the Bundesrat. So it's unlikely, given that, that Germany will head off in a completely different direction than the direction we've seen over the last decade. Great. Thank you, Sam. We're already slowly coming to an end or basically coming to an end of this episode. There's one last question I always ask everyone, and that is uh, for reading recommendations, one for an uh, academic political science piece and another one for non-political science, uh, non-academic piece. So the first one, the academic one, will be Catherine de Vries's book, Euroscepticism and the Future of European Integration from 2018. For me, this is the most interesting book on public opinion in Europe, probably for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, what Catherine tries to do in that book is she tries to try and identify what are the key dimensions of domestic attitudes towards European integration, um, based on attitudes towards national institutions vis-a-vis -vis European institutions. So do people trust their national institutions more than they trust the European institutions to make decisions? And if so, why? And what I find fascinating about that book is she really gives an underpinning that shows why the UK public was so sceptical about uh, the process of European integration and also why some other member states may well be member states that, that, that could move towards leaving the EU, particularly Sweden, because in a sense, the Swedish public really trust their national institutions, trust their national politicians, um, and trust the policy powers and the actions that they take. And when that happens, they are, they, they, and there's a crisis, they will, in those countries that trust those national institutions, they'll move much more towards supporting them against Europe. And so I found that a very persuasive new framework to think about how we understand uh, the big dynamics of domestic public opinion vis-a-vis -vis Europe. The more non-academic book is a recent book by Luke van Middelaar, who is a uh, commentator, ex-civil uh, servant, uh, public official in the Netherlands. Uh, the book's called Alarums and Excursions, Improvising Politics in the European Stage. And here, This is a book that, that goes through a series of crises case studies that relates exactly to what we were talking about, Tarek, which is to, to look back at the various different crises that the EU has faced, whether it's the Eurozone crisis or, or the migration crisis, and looked at how the, the EU has adapted and been able to respond to these crises. And in most cases, he shows exactly what we've discussed, that in the initial stage, is sort of it, the perception is chaos and inactivity, but gradually the EU finds a way to come up with new frameworks that are targeted to address some of the key challenges. So I find this a very interesting book, very rich information about some of the key decision making that's gone on through some of the key crises and very important for understanding the recent development and recent evolution of European politics. Simon, thank you so much. Really, thanks for this really illuminating conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Tarek. Bye.